0: Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your co-hosts are Ronnie Langer-Kroger and Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is your host.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and welcome to Envision. When we think about and discuss fostering regenerative communities, we often touch on social justice, inclusion, and equity. We want these values embodied in our organizations, whether they're for-profit, governmental, or in the social sector. Yet there is frequently a gap between intent and impact that can stop progress on inclusion and equity. This gap comes from blind spots in the leadership, such as the lack of objectivity and implicit biases. And I believe we need to discuss these blind spots in order to create the dynamic, inclusive, equitable organizations and communities we seek. To discuss this with me today, is the Reverend Dr. John Diane Johnson? Hi, Diane.
2: Welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do uh, think. Um, very often, depending upon the uh, community that I'm with, I use the Reverend, and sometimes I don't, which is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that more. Well, and it speaks to bi- people's um, not just implicit but direct biases against organized religion, but.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Well, that's that's a that's a perfect lead in because, you know, (laughs) you have a really fascinating background and, you know, a Ph.D. in organizational development. And you recently completed and were um, your Masters of Divinity and ordained in the United Church of Christ as, I believe, a a public community minister. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So. Could you brief, briefly explain that? your journey? Yes, exactly. What is that, and, and what do you focus on?
2: Yeah, so um, I guess I will actually start um, with the fact that I've always um, been a change maker. I've always been someone who facilitates um, folks, individuals, organizations um, exploring and examining. Where they are, their communities, their organizations, in service to creating change. And so um, the the path to being a minister actually starts started when over you know over twenty years ago, uh, where I was really, actually even longer than that, when I was in high school, actually did a report on the Warren Court. And I was fascinated by that there could be um, an institution like the Supreme Court that could have such phenomenal impact on justice in in the United States. Very, very different than what we have right now. Um, So originally, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was going to, I went to University of Pennsylvania undergrad. I was going to be a political science major. I took one political science class and one law class. And in the law class, they said, oh, well, there's not. Necessary a direct correlation between the law and justice, and I was like, "What?" Right. And needless to say, I was like, "Now, what am I going to do?" <laughs> <laughs> so I discovered communications, and given that I grew up in Los Angeles and Hollywood, in and in the world of Disneyland, um, I was really clear about the importance and the impact of culture. So um, at that time, my theory of change about where I could have impact was studying communications and then working in the field of of communications and broadcast, Um, but in working at the networks, which were intensely bureaucratic institutions that were not really focused on um, truth, equity, various perspectives. Um, after a couple of years, got really, really disenchanted with that, and all that time from you know elementary school, I had been uh, volunteering and really engaged in communities and really engaged in um, having positive impact and and being in service to a range of different in a range of different causes. So when I realized, it's like, wait, wait, there, there, there are people who our employees, our, our staff in organizations that are creating change. So discovering the world of, of non, not-for-profits and the social sector. So moved from doing corporate communications, marketing and sales to doing um, fundraising and resource development. And that led very, very quickly because I'm always someone who uses um, inquiry, appreciative inquiry. So I'm constantly asking why. Why are we raising money? To what end, and so that led me very, very quickly to look at issues around strategy. And so when I, I did a master's in nonprofit management, um, where I, I began looking at organizational development within not-for-profits, had an amazing experience um, in that program at the New School. Had a, a an a, a epiphany um, around the power of of education and the power and well the the and the power of I'm developing conceptual models, research. So I pledged to do a PhD at some point. Um, so I um, applied to Tufts. Um, got into a program where I actually self-designed a program in interdisciplinary studies where I did um, studied organizational development, sociology, and nonprofit studies. And so that um, really allowed me to look at the dynamic of, of, of change and looking at systems change. During that time, I was working with a lot of different organizations, doing a lot of work around community service and community service learning, working with organizations like City Year and Teach for America, and um, youth build all anchor national anchor programs that were looking at issues of service, um, equity, and diversity in various aspects and working in a variety of different communities. And so, all that is having a, um, started my national consulting firm, Mapu Management Consulting. Mapu is a Kosa name that means woman who carries ideas. And that was a name that was given to me when I was, um, fortunate enough to do work in South Africa in the early nineties, um, co-leading a cultural brigade of, of, artists and folks who were doing housing and, and, um, journalism. And we did a, a, a trip around the country for about, um, six weeks. And, um, and that was a really extraordinary experience. So also, I'm I'm getting exposed to lots and lots of systems, lots of large institutions, foundations, government entities, um, um, socially conscious businesses, etc. But during that time, I would say in the last um, 15 years at least, my own personal um, spiritual development happened, and what I also Um, began working with organizations where their sense of why they were doing social change work was informed by their relationship of something larger than they were. And so I started seeing and and recognizing that um, when individuals as well as organizations carried that sense with them, whether they were faith-based or not, they had a a a stronger capacity to actually make change happen. And that's um, what was some of the inspiration and motivation for me after having a a robust and thriving national consulting practice um, to go and and do that master's in divinity at Pacific School of Religion. Originally, uh, I went to get my master's in divinity um, literally only to understand the system of various religious denominations and how they in, in this uh, current day and age were um, serving as arbiters of values and arbiters of what the, the connection between, I'm thinking specifically of Christian denominations, the connection between religious beliefs and the intersection of politics. Um, because I consistently saw that um, those denominations that were also, po- that were politically aligned conservatively, I didn't understand their theology. So I went to seminary to understand their theology. And in that process, got really, really inspired and realized the power of ordained clergy to to uh, to be in service to progressive um, social change. And so that's what led me to on the path to not only finish my master's in divinity, but to um, uh, align myself with United Church of Christ because it's a politically progressive church where their their concept of God is informed by um, doing politi- progressive political action and seeking social justice. right? So it's like Martin Luther King Jr, in his the the notion of building a beloved community where equity and social justice is at the center, you know, that's informed by an understanding about who God is and how God calls us to do work. So that's the combination of the, of the religious spirituality and social change side. And at the same time, I'm not only an ordained Christian minister, but I'm also a practicing Buddhist and I'm also um, uh, culturally Jewish. So I'm a walking interfaith amalgam. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> yes. like, so how does that work? It's like, it's a long story.
1: It's a long story. Yes. No, but that's, that's good. So how, I'm just curious too to, to learn a little bit more about how the, the, the United Church of Christ al- allows you to have a public ministry, I guess, for lack of a better and word, I'm that the so, ministry is the world.
2: Yeah. Um, I, it, it's a longer and I don't really want to focus the whole program on, you know, progressive Christian denominations, but it, it just really quickly, so within the United So the United Church of Christ is actually was created um in the in the in the mid in the mid fifties or sixties as when three different um historic denominations, the the congregational, so congregational, so when I was just in um, in New England for the last two weeks and I have a joke where because New England is you know, is the, the bedrock of the history of our uh, country, there are so I mean, everywhere you turn there's a congregational church I'm like, oh my god, there's another one oh my god, there's another one and so um, and what congregationalists as a denomination they're founded literally, their history is about um embodying social justice. So Congregationalists were the denomination, were the people that funded when the Omnistad, that slave ship that was taken over by the captive slaves and um, uh, they were thinking that they were sailing back to Africa when they were actually switching back and forth and ended up in Connecticut. So it was the Congregationalists that raised money and hired Adams to um, argue in front of the Supreme Court and and win—that's like the history of that particular denomination. Um, so many firsts: like first denomination to have black and whites co-worship together, first denomination to ordain a woman, first denomination to divest in South Africa, first denomination to um, uh, support—you um, know—abolition. I mean, the, the history of social justice goes on and on and on. But the the entity that ordains people is at the local level. So there's a local network um, that ordains you. And I had a, like so many other things in my life, I had a, a vision and a very, very clear picture of how I was going to be in service. So I actually um, argued that in, um, instead of working with one particular congregation, like most people, how most people get. Um ordained, that my service and that my calling out of my relationship um, to God was being in service to networks of churches, networks of congregations doing interfaith work and doing social justice work. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to articulate why that was an ordainable call, that it that it literally was in service to the church. And it was in in service to my um, literally calling about how I can serve God and serve the denomination. And that's Mm -hmm. how it became a community public minister, meaning that my quote-unquote congregants are a variety of communities, a variety of congregations. Um, So, for instance, um, um, I'm in the process of working with the Unitarian Universalists association um, as a denomination in helping them um, address a, a, a host of issues related to diversity, equity and inclusion and leadership. You know, I, I do interfaith work. I've, I've been working with the San Francisco Foundation and their FACE program, which it once again is a, an, an interfaith capacity building program that's been around for 30 years. Have worked with um, um, Interfaith Power and Light, which is a national organization that is at the intersection of religion, um, spirituality, and environmental justice.
1: Okay, Diane, I'd I'd like to change, uh, turn the the topic just a little bit here. And you know, we started discussing this interview because of a gap you are seeing repeatedly between intent and impact. That I. Alluded to in, in in the lead-in, and so uh, at several recent leadership and social change conferences, you've seen this. So my question to you is: How do we connect the dots between our activism to create diverse and inclusive communities while avoiding the resistance that arises from the emotional labor demanded of people of color?
2: Yeah. So I um, I think it has to do with, and as you said in your introduction, the, the distinction between intentions and impact. So I think of, and I think especially, I mean, we live in the Bay Area, Northern California bubble, When I call bubble, right? So we've got, and, and there are lots of bubbles, like whether they're in Arbor, Michigan, or you know, the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts or in Chicago or in Chapel Hill, the Research Triangle, you know, there are there, there all kinds of bub- bubbles in terms of regional places where there's a lot of, quote unquote, progressive folks, progressive politics, systems and structures that lean toward um, equity and justice, Right. And I think that the, the the challenge is that, and this not only in these bubbles, but actually all around the country and all around the world, there is, you know, the notion I think that most people are, um, uh want people to have a good life. Want they they think of themselves as um, good people, right? They want so they don't. I, I think most most people do not think of themselves as actively engaged in injustice or actively engaged in, um, oppressing people or actively engaged in, in unconsciously hurting people. The challenges that we, and I'll, I'll use specifically, um, uh, my own, from my, because I like to speak from I. I always, when I work with groups, I say, let's use I statements. Let's not assume that there's a categorical, um, universal um, truth that everyone uh, lives. But what I what I see is that there, um, bec- because because um, the dominant culture, which is um, what I'll say, which is um, White, which is heterosexual, which um, uh, I would say co- again culturally middle class, regardless of what actually the economics of people are. There, there is a there is a normative culture. There is, and I, I, I use the statement: What do fish talk about? Well, you can be pretty sure that it's not water because they're in it. The water that people swim in is dominant culture, and what happens is that. That difference between um, you have the intent, you know, well-meaning or good intention people, or or directly people who are who identify themselves as activists, people who identify themselves as change makers in the world, whether it's in education or community health or medicine or technology, you know, all of these landscapes that um, uh, make our society and our culture thrive. All of those um, landscapes are, are, are immersed in a dominant culture. And, and um, I would argue that that, uh, that, and many people argue that that dominant culture is around whiteness, which is why we have this. Emergence over the last um, five years about where we are, or where, where change makers are explicitly talking about dismantling white supremacy, and they use that term white supremacy on purpose. And for many people, it's like ah, white supremacy. Ooh, that that oh that that that's kind of. Um, hyperbolic. That's a little extreme. like you know, I'm not I'm not someone walking around in sheets and a you know and a cone because that's their image about what's what what white supremacy is. But what has been happening over time as we have seen the it's, it's like the 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 cover has been lifted in terms of the um, the profound, um, negative impact of that white supremacy, right? So we're, uh so for instance, just in Oakland um, this week, or I guess last week, I was away. But you know, two women of color were in a train in, in Concord. They rode the train in Oakland, and one of them was killed, right? And 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 so and there was a, a, at least a thousand people who were protesting in Oakland earlier this week because they saw that act because it was a um, a, a white man who who um, engaged in that um, horrific act of violence. Um, they see that as not just as an individual episodic. Tragic event. They understand that that is a reflection of a systemic belief that that brown and black lives don't matter as much as other lives, right? And so, this is a, a very long-winded way of saying that the challenges that we have is that there is like, oh, well, that's out there. All of that racism, sexism, you know, homophobia. All of that is out there, and that doesn't live in me. But the reality, because of the way dominant culture is that and and how I would say specifically racism is interwoven is in the DNA of uh, of America that every American institution um, had racism and had the fundamental belief that um, black and brown, People, or actually anywhere from not people to expendable, so so this has is is in the pores of American culture. So it's very very challenging for um, for individuals to. I want to put it in a positive way that um, the the opportunity to be in consistent inquiry about how am I unconscious in the way that I run my life or in the way that I run my organization that represents um, racism, that represents sexism. I mean, you, you, if we think about the massive changes socially and culturally between Black Lives Matters, Me Too, economic justice movements, those are movements that are a um, an acknowledgment that systemic and structural institutional change must must happen. And what I think consistently happens is individuals will say, well, I as an individual, I, I haven't harmed anybody so why do I need to um, explore and examine my individual behavior? You know that that's that, that's the system out there that's um, uh, prejudiced and deeply, rooted in, um, excluding people. And, but the reality is, is that systems are made up of individual people. Right.
1: So So we're going to have to take a short break. We'll continue our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Diane Johnson of Mapu Consulting in a moment.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit regenerate.coach.
1: on the Voice America Variety Channel. What's your coffee
0: story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Simoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives. Every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. you are listening to Envision, to find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show.
1: We're back with Reverend Dr. Diane Johnson of Mapu Consulting, and we were talking about gaps between intent and impact and some of the inherent issues around the, the DNA of white supremacy inside of organizations and systems, and recognizing that systems are made up of individuals. And so, on that point, Diane, monocultural organizations or systems don't happen by accident, and neither do diverse, inclusive cultures.
2: Right. And that's so, right. that's what I told
1: how, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So, how do we build? Yeah. How how do we how do we connect those dots and build inclusive, equitable organizations?
2: Yeah. So let me. Yeah. Because I think this is really important. For, um, I can imagine folks listening to this, um, because I want to bring it down to how do we how do individuals working in organizations um, how do we build. Because yeah, I I realize that the first segment I might have felt a little theoretical and a little conceptual, so I want to bring it down to one-on-one. But I, I, I will say that one way to think about it is you know those Russian nesting dolls? And I think they're called Petrushka dolls. But yeah. mm-hmm. there's like the tiniest one and then there's a bigger one and a little one, a bigger one, and a bigger one. If we think of ourselves as at an individual, we are the smallest doll. But then we are enclosed in a family system that's part of a community, um, or that we as an individual are part of a family, but then we're also part of an organization and a business, which is part of a community, which lives in a county, which lives in a state. And so, and one of the things is in order to get to the smallest doll, you have to unpack the larger doll. And, And one of the things to think about is what is our relationship as an individual, to other individuals in our organizations, and 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 that the relationships get bigger and bigger and bigger, and I and I want to um, really encourage the the reflection about what um what what in what does inclusion and diversity and equity look like within any particular organization, and as you said that. That diverse organizations don't happen by accident; they happen through by intention. They happen by intention, commitment, allocation of resources. And I think that people are, are aware of, of really aware of that model. But I don't know whether people are also aware of the notion that that monoculture organizations or organizations that have very very little. Um, diversity, however, uh, across the spectrum of social identity, whether it's gender, race, um, um, ethnicity, uh, 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 where people have grown up, their educational experiences, etc cetera, those don't happen by accident either. And so when, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about um, in, in the tech field, where um, again, in the last number of years that this has exploded in the sense of wow, we need more women in tech we need more folks of color And that question is well why like what difference does it make we the argument is consistently well we want the most qualified person regardless of what their their um, background backgrounds are. and what we know about healthy, Effective, impactful systems—whether it's our body or whether it's an organization, it require or an or an, or an environmental ecosystem. All of those systems require diversity to actually survive. So the that, the one classic example that um I'm uh, that's been um, shared uh, here in the in the Bay Area and I think probably around the country too is. Um, that there were coders, there's like a facial recognition system, and coders, you know, did what they did. And guess what? So when a when a African American person came up, what 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 did the system uh, equate it to? They equated it to a chimpanzee or a monkey, right? When you write, like, my understanding is that there are sensors that actually, you know, the, the automatic faucets that that there's sometimes that they actually recognize not just movement, but they recognize, um, uh, skin tone. So Mm -hmm. those those are like classic examples where the fact that they didn't have, or, or I used to see this all the time in terms of architecture. Like when you go into a bathroom, I can tell whether it's been a male or a female designer. Because of where the toilet paper roll is and where it's stored, <laughs> it's a silly thing. But it's like, hey, okay, that was because the person who designed it designed it from their particular perspective, mm-hmm. right? So this this idea that we need to pay attention that that that, that healthy systems require diverse experiences to 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 thrive. Right. And, and in, in my experience of working with over 8,000 individuals and organizations who are working at organizational effectiveness and they're working at impact and they're working at how to, how to literally change the world for the better. I almost say every instance of when an organization shifts to understanding why diversity, equity, and inclusion is important? Is it because they have some type of personal, interpersonal experience that literally lights them up where it's no longer theoretical, where not, no longer is inclusion and diversity theoretical, but it's like they, they, they have an experience where it's like, oh, Oh, I really didn't see that blind spot. Like I had I had no idea. Right? And 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 once that experience happens where they can interrogate it and then Um, and I think this is what's really important, Um, the ability for us to be self-reflective and to to interrogate our experiences with compassion and and understanding that then helps us start working on how we see the world and experience the world and therefore can create organizations that, that really walk the talk around equity and justice. Right?
1: So so how do so for listeners how would they be able to be more become more aware of their own blind spots their own implicit biases you know and you know what what can they do to foster that amongst in themselves as well as in the organizations and communities in which they work live and operate
2: Yeah so I um was fortunate enough early early in my um career um, to hear Gloria Steinem um, uh, talk and I remember her saying, if if you have a response to something, and then if you were to change, she was specifically um, talking about gender, and if you change the gender and your response might be different, it's not necessarily sexism, but you get to look at it. And I, and I think that this is a really, so I, I remember the first time I went, to, to work down south and I was sitting in a, I was working, sitting in a restaurant. Um, and this woman came up to me and started asking me about like, what time are you open and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I'm not even in the front, right? I'm like sitting at a table off to the side. And she goes, well, I thought you worked here. And I looked at her, I said, and would you ask me that question if I was white? And she goes, oh, of course not. Ding, ding, ding. Cause it, it, that question took her so off guard that she actually answered honestly. <laughs> so That's an example. Right. So it is. So it's, an example. it's like if your response or if your action might be different because of either the race or um, gender or um, sexual orientation or um, uh, gender identity. If were, you you at least you you have the opportunity to to inquire about that. So when I, I think about this all the time, and and literally. Um, uh, and this is where actually microaggress—this whole notion of not even notion, but the the um, uh, the idea of microaggressions, where unconscious people are constantly either having an action or having a question that is um, is it is uh, occurs because of um, the 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 gender or the racial identity or the um, sexual identity of someone. So. So for instance, uh, you know, I have, um, I have locks and I always put my hair up in really, really cool, you know, cool styles. And so very often, you know, curious, mostly white women will go, you know, there, there's now a t-shirt that says, do not touch the hair. Right. Okay. It's like, so that, so that, that, that curious, that like, Oh, like, look at your hair and I want to like touch it. Cause it's new and it's interesting. It's an Now you wouldn't do that to someone who was that you were familiar with and you understood their hairstyle. Right. So you don't think about it as a racist thing when you want to like, you know, or, or the, so, so it speaks to, and so it speaks to motivation. Why do you want to do that? Now it might be out of curiosity because Again, so many people we live in isolated cultures or we live in um, in places where we don't have diversity in like in our lives right we are We are more segregated now than we have been in the last um, sixty years right wow. the, level yeah. of, the level of economic and racial segregation is is is, is terrifying. And what that unfortunately has done for many people is it, it, it does not allow them to build individual relationships with people who are different than they are. So for the individuals who are thinking, well, how do I work on creating uh, an inclusive, um, diverse um, organization or business or congregation? It's about you have to build relationships with people who are different than you. And then people say, well, I don't know any, like, I don't know any, you know, Latinx, I don't know any, you know, folks of African descent, I don't know any Indians, like, I don't, like, so what do I do? And and my answer, um, and this is about intention and commitment, um, is that then you get to actually make a conscious effort to develop relationships, to develop Organizational systems and structures that allow folks that look different and have different experiences for you to come in. So I'll share a, a strategy that I um, suggest to, to a lot of clients. So if you're um, you have a position open, you you have a commitment to the diversity of the pool, which means that you're going to have to. Um, be aware that there's going to be some challenges because you you might not fill that position because most often you fill that position by using your own internal network which oftentimes happen to be very monocultural so you have to be you have to have a commitment to in your recruitment pool that your recruitment pool has to be diverse and so therefore you have to spend the time and energy to con- to to conduct outreach to make sure that you get as broad array of candidates, because if you get a wider array of candidates, at least you, you um, expand the possibility of having folks who have um, different, diverse, unique experience that will add to the organization. And the organization has to be willing to not do what I call m M&M and diversity all different colors on the outside, but it's all the same inside. So if everyone's you've got like this whole rainbow effect, but everyone comes from an Ivy League school or comes from the same three colleges and lives in the same area. That's what I would call superficial um, um, diversity and inclusion. So organizations have to be willing to look at their culture to see, is the culture willing to change and shift to really um, a bit, Create a culture that allows people for, with different perspectives, different orientations, different experiences to be to be um, profoundly welcomed and be part of the team.
1: And on that powerful note, we'll be right back after a short break.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspiring really
3: fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations, and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit regenerate.coach.
4: and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zock Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and, yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zock Show on The Voice America Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective.
0: You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back to Envision. We are here with the Reverend Dr. Diane Johnson of Mapu Consulting. And we were talking about how organizations and individuals themselves can really focus on building more inclusive, equitable cultures in their organizations and communities. Diane, what resources would you recommend for organizations to that want to incorporate more inclusion and more engagement around inclusion in their organizations? Where should they look?
2: Yeah, I, I want to um, answer that before with a, with a real, um, I'd say, important emphasis. That diversity, equity, and inclusion cannot be... A side um, activity. It cannot be something that you check off in the box and like, okay, well, we want to be more diverse and inclusive and in a more equitable organization. So, so, um, organizational leaders have to be extraordinarily clear about how building a diverse, and equitable, and inclusive organization impacts your bottom line. Because if if if, if um, DEI is not um, included as a core organizational strategy, it just becomes window dressing. And so I, 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 I can't tell you how many times people said, oh, so can you come and do a, like a session, a workshop on um, diversity and inclusion? And we have 35 minutes during a lunch session and you do and I'm like uh, excuse me I don't do drive by diversity work and 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 that and that's not to say that we that organizations have to start somewhere but the, the, but they're starting somewhere has to be with the recognition that um, that it's not only the the moral or the, it might be a moral or ethical thing to do it has to be understood as being a critical component of how people do their jobs well, mm-hmm. and so so the the so almost in any industry, given the globalization of every industry, the the fact that we need people who have an under uh, the 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 more diverse any particular team is, and especially around leadership, the higher probability you have of of being more successful in your field. Right. So uh, I, I, I really want to emphasize that because, um, uh, otherwise I think, and and it speaks to this, well, this good intention, like, well, it would be good for our, for our staff to have, uh, diversity, uh, diversity, uh, diversity training. But if, if it's not connected to why is that, um, understanding and that, and that, um, perspective of of understanding what microaggressions are and understanding what dominant and non-dominant cultures and understanding isms and how they play out in the workplace, Um, then I think um, people run the risk of... not using their resources effectively, and in every industry, right? Whether it's the hospitality in the, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about all the work that's happening in socially responsible businesses and 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 the conscious business movement, um, which I will say is extraordinarily undiverse, and that's another show. Um, <laughs> right. But I, yes, but I but I I really um think it's it's critical. That folks, again, have an understanding about, so why, what is motivating you to want to create, to change your organizational culture, right? That, that's so that fair. Said, yeah, so that's said.
1: Why- That said, where do they where do they how can they start educating themselves or start ask finding resources that will help them make sure that they're asking the right questions?
2: Yeah. So I have to say in the in the Bay Area, one of the most amazing um, programs is um, the Beyond Separation um, program, which is a individual. I think it's a seven week, either seven or eight week course specifically for whites to understand dominant culture, to understand racism, to, under, you know, to understand behaviors, um, activities. It's, it's an extraordinary, um, extraordinary program. Um, I think um, I, I really like uh, um, Michael Eric Dyson's book, Dear White People. Which mm-hmm. was his book is two books ago because he's come out with a, a, a recent book. So this, uh, um, So when I think it is uh, related to the, the, the concept of the different levels of a system, whether it's an individual organizational, I think that part of it is um, really finding so through there are any number of books, so like the, the classic classic article, is um, Peggy McIntosh's um, unpacking the white privilege knapsack, right? That's kind of like fundamental reading for folks who want to look at this issues of privilege and unconscious bias and 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 racism. Um, I think of, um, of Beverly Tatum's book, although it's in the, it's for an educational set, setting. Why are all the why are all the black kids sitting at the table? Something like that. Um, so I, I think there's, um, uh, there's a, any number of titles um, from Barrett Kohler that is uh, having about difficult conversations about race. Um, uh, and so, I, so I, I think it is w- that people get to inquire about this, not f- from reading books and doing in- intellectual work, but then it's also um, exper- experiential right? Mm -hmm. So um, it is, it might be starting, I I think this is a really, not just resources, but I'm going to talk about methods, right? So in your organization, to literally have um, uh, a book club, you could do it in your, it could be in a faith-based setting, it could be in an organizational setting, any networks that you're in. For instance, read Tahasi Coates um, um, bestseller and then talk about that, right. Have a conversation about that. Um, you know, so I, I think, um, and and because we also have to be, I think it's really important. We also have to be incredibly compassionate, um, um, with ourselves knowing that this is, this is a lifelong process that, 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 that social change, individual change, transformation, is something that is not episodic. It's not transactional. So um, it really is uh, creating the time and energy um, uh, to do this. And I'm I'm not really answering your questions in terms of very very specific
1: resources. No, but but that's good. That's good. I, I think. I mean, I think it's also very powerful that you mentioned that it's not transactional, which is also very typical of our culture, and it's really transformational. So it not being episodic, but something of an evolution, you know, that we are always becoming, and that that's part of a regenerative community and building a regenerative society. Right, right. So I would like to ask you in the short time that we have left, like, what do you offer at, at Mapu, and what, what are you currently focusing on? What's next?
2: So the, the name of my firm actually is Mapu Management Consulting. I added the management a bunch of years ago because it really is about management consulting. So I um am fortunate enough and, and I'm really my my dream clients are those organizations that really um want to transform, that they want to um create deep cultural change within their organizations and they want to figure out a way to do it so i as a consultant um my i i'm also fortunate to i work with clients over time so i'm not one of those consultants who like drops in parachutes in and then leaves um, so I'm, I'm working a lot with national initiatives regional um initiatives or um local networks that are, are engaged in some kind of systemic change. So whether it's um, an organization that really wants to look at um, uh, supporting and building the capacity of the edu- of the education pipeline for, for young people, or whether it's a, a major foundation in their environmental program and looking at again, um, looking at using racial justice as the, the lens in how they um, do their work and how they fund and how they support networks. Um, so it's, um, it is really about, um, and, and I, and I'm lucky enough to work in a range of, of, of different fields and landscapes, although right now I'm focusing on a lot of interfaith work, a lot of um, uh, socially conscious businesses um, and a, and a lot of work in um in leadership development across different fields and that super, mm-hmm.
1: super. i was just going to say thank you that okay. it's it's been an honor having you here today and i'm just delighted that we were able to have you come in
2: okay great talking with you
1: and yes we've spoken about how raising awareness of blind spots in leadership supports the building of an inclusive equitable organization and a community and Listeners, if you're enjoying this show, we ask you that you consider supporting its ongoing production and development with a one-time or monthly ongoing donation. This show has been part of the gift economy for the past year, and we ask that you consider giving what you think it's worth. We now have over 23,000 downloads in 53 countries and 38 states in the District of Columbia. So please go to www.studyhq.com forward slash support hyphen envision. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Thomas Rosenberg, and this is Envision.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. For more information about today's guests and upcoming shows, please see our show page on voiceamerica.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.